Good morning. If this is your first Sunday here, I said this last week, I am not Randy Boltinghouse. Uh, Randy will be back next month, uh, maybe a little bit sooner than that. Uh, My name is Todd Daly. I am a professor of theology and ethics at Urbana Theological Seminary in town, and I've told the last bunch, I promise I will do my best not to lapse into a theological lecture or a lecture on ethics, although it's understandable that would be exciting, I know. Um, (laughs) um, Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and ask that we would hear from you, and that in all of the ways that this sermon will fall short, you will make up through your love, your mercy, and your grace. May your Holy Spirit even now be uh, moving here in our midst. Convict us, challenge us, present us with yourself and your truth. Set our hearts alight for you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Bobby Leach, Jesse W. Sharp, Robert Overacker. Not household names, admittedly. Chances are you've probably never heard of them before at all. But they've all got something in common. They've all attempted to make a name for themselves by doing the impossible by going over Niagara Falls at 170 feet high and living to talk about it. Bobby Leach, an Englishman, actually made the trip trip successfully in a steel barrel all the way back in 1911. But he spent six months in the hospital recuperating from numerous fractures and other injuries. It's, It's somewhat ironic that 15 years later, During a lecture tour in New Zealand, he slipped on a banana pill, broke his leg, and later died of complications from the injury. (laughs) Jesse Sharp was not so fortunate, 28-year-old bachelor and experienced kayaker from Tennessee, attempted to ride over the brink of the Canadian Horseshoe Falls in his 12-foot kayak. Uh, And because he wanted to be recognizable on film, he had his film and video crew captured the whole episode, refused to wear a helmet. Uh, And after shooting the falls, in his words, he intended to continue down the rapids to Lewiston, New York, where he had made dinner reservations for that evening. Needless to say, he didn't make those reservations. And finally, Robert Overacker in 1995 from Camarillo, Texas, went over the Horseshoe Falls a little afternoon on a single jet ski with a jetpack parachute attached to his back. Uh, As he skied toward the falls, he planned to ignite the pack and safely parachute to the ground, but when he went over the brink, the the rocket didn't discharge. Never recovered. They all attempted to do the impossible, to make a name for themselves by doing that which is thought to be impossible, that which can't be done. And I I think, 
bear with me here. I think the similar thing is happening in the book of Exodus in, in the Passover story. Uh, the characters, however, may possess a little more common sense than those just mentioned. But the main character in the book of Exodus is not actually Moses, it's not Pharaoh, it's not even the Israelites. The, the, the main character in Exodus is God, Yahweh. And the impossible scenario for the Israelites was liberation from bondage, from the tyrannical grip of a ruthless and hard-hearted Pharaoh. The story we're going to look at this morning is Exodus 12. It is on page 48 of your pew Bibles. Let me read just a few verses from this narrative. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month. The first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel... That on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be your old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep Or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it until morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. From from this text, I think we can can glean one big thing at least, and, and it's this, that God makes a name for himself in our impossible situations. God makes a name for himself in our impossible situations situations. So as, as most sermons go, there's probably three points we can, we can pick out here, and uh, that's, that's kind of the route we're going to follow this morning. And because God does make a name for himself in our impossible situation, um, we can expect God's protection. The first point, we can expect God's protection. It's interesting That in this text, God gives very specific instructions to Moses for the protection of the Israelites as their near 400 years of bondage is about to come to a dramatic end. Nine different plagues up to this point, from blood to gnats, frogs and locusts, darkness, etc. Pharaoh has been told that this tenth and final plague will claim all the firstborn of Egypt. Yet Pharaoh, still unmoved, despite all the miraculous signs that have been presented to him. 
But for the Israelites, this night would be one of, not of destruction, but of protection and emancipation. What would go down in Egyptian history as a night of horror and terror and death would forever in Israel's history be remembered as a day of deliverance. The great and awful Passover. But this protection comes at a cost. It involves sacrificing a defect-free year-old lamb, which was to be killed on the 14th day of the month, and the blood spread on the sides and the tops of the doorposts outside their dwellings. Um, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that activity as, as a firstborn. And if I were in that situation, I would be out there helping my dad paint, paint, paint the whole thing red. But what is interesting about this act is that God tells Moses and Aaron not that this blood is for, for him, for the Lord, for the angel of darkness, but rather he says, this is a sign for you, for you in, in the plural. Verse 13, the blood will be a sign for you, plural, on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Not only was this lamb to be sacrificed, but it was to be eaten as a Passover meal. And, and here, too, we find very specific instructions on how this is to happen. Even to the extent of how to make it. You can almost imagine one of those um, prep labels. The product you are about to enjoy is 100% spotless Israeli-year-old lamb roasted over open flame at 450 for three to five hours till it's brown and tender. Don't eat it raw. Don't boil it. Don't refrigerate it. Take the leftovers and burn them. And here's some side dishes as well. Some bitter herbs and rustic pita bread. And, and how do they respond? Well, the, the Israelites respond in faith. They, they, they worship. They have an expectancy that God is about to do something dramatic. And not only do we find specific instructions on how to cook the lamb, but they're also given very specific and unusual instructions on how um, they're to go about eating this Passover meal. With great haste, with your cloak tucked in your belt, sandals on your feet, staff in hand. That, that we have to translate that in, into our culture, but, but the, the whole notion of eating quickly, eating uh, in a big hurry, is, is not something that we, we struggle with. Um, that's not all that unusual. We, we don't call it fast food for nothing. We, we typically eat our food with great haste. You know, one hand on the steering wheel, another on a value meal sandwich, and our foot on the gas pedal. And if you're really good, you can be texting as well, I suppose. Um, but, but eating in the ancient Near East was typically a, a protracted affair. You, you actually reclined to eat. Now, in American culture, we're actually warming up to this idea, reclining to eat. But typically, you would recline, you would take off your sandals as you entered a dwelling, probably your outer cloak as well, and if you had a staff or something to that effect, you would leave it near the entrance. So this command to eat in a hurried-up manner was certainly new. 
I mean, can you imagine your neighbors inviting you to dinner on a chilly and rainy evening? And imagine as you uh, are greeted at the door that your hosts are, they're already stuffing their faces with food. You know, don't take, don't take off your raincoat. Just take your umbrella with you. You can put it over by the side, but just get over here and start eating. Don't worry about sitting down. And your hosts just start uh, gobbing up the food. They just start inhaling it. And then they take the leftovers and they just start chucking them in the fire. That'd be kind of uh, that'd be kind of an odd situation for us. Uh, and truth be told, a lot of us have probably been to gatherings where we could only hope that things would just move along that quickly. <laughs> There's a real sense of urgency and expectation around this whole dinner, which demonstrates a faith or a trust in God and His imminent deliverance. God was about to act. God was about to act, and their suffering and bondage was about to come to an end. This was no lighthearted occasion. They were eating their lamb and their bitter herbs in haste, while outside their doors, death and loud wailing were going on. There was no dinner music this evening. Now, regardless of what your opinions may be of President Obama, we are not, thankfully, in this type of oppressive or tyrannical regime. But there are certainly other kinds of bondage that we may be quite familiar with. There can be relational bondage. Some of us are in financial bondage or career bondage or spiritual bondage. There may be several of us here who feel trapped in a relationship that is slowly withering our souls. And there may be no end in sight. Others could be in a type of career bondage where the market doesn't seem to be supporting making a career change and the bills need to be paid, but deep down you kind of get the sense that this is not where I'm supposed to be. This is not what I am called to do. But it may be too risky to kind of venture out at this point. This kind of bondage can often keep us from making a decision, from making any kind of decision at all. And I don't think that's all that uncommon. Um, I'm curious, how many here have trouble making up their minds? Well, there's at least, okay, three or four of you um, how, how many of you aren't sure if you have trouble making <laughs> your minds? That's, that's kind of the follow-up question. Um, but what, what seems to be underlying this bondage is a, a profound sense of fear. And we're all, to some degree, acquainted with fear. Fear of maybe loneliness, fear of conflict, fear of pain. And we get very adept at developing ways to manage the bondage, so to speak. Because in some respects, there's some safety there. It may be fear which keeps you from giving God control over some area of your life. And I think these are some, some diagnostic questions that are worth asking ourselves on some type of periodic basis. It might help uncover what's going on. Uh, the first, if, I, if God were big enough, I would... Well, you fill in the blank. 
Or if I were really convinced of God's protection, I could step out in this area. Or if I knew God was working in my current situation, maybe I could have some endurance. Now, this is certainly not a suggestion to throw caution to the wind and make some type of irrational decision um, or moving out in a direction that you know may not be the best. But these questions can help identify maybe what, what's at stake in your life, what's, what's going on. We can't abandon a sense of God's protection or let fear paralyze us from doing what God may be calling us to do. Because God makes a name for himself in our impossible situations, we can expect his protection. And then secondly, we can count on God's deliverance. We can count on his deliverance. And throughout the first several chapters of Exodus, we see that God has actually promised to deliver his people. And while the Israelites are commanded to eat the Passover feast in expectancy and under the sign of God's protection, the deliverance itself is accomplished solely by God. God is the liberator. And he does it by bringing an awful plague of death. There is no escape except through the sign of blood. And there is no Pharaoh or God or power or principality who can oppose Yahweh. And in verse 12, we see that the Lord tells Moses he is going to bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt, including Pharaoh himself. Most commentators of this book note that all of the previous plagues that had been unleashed on Pharaoh and the Egyptians were aimed at uncovering the powerlessness of Egypt's gods when confronted with the Lord. These plagues were aimed at particular Egyptian deities and localities. And earlier in the narrative, uh, even Pharaoh's own magicians early on recognized when they were unable to replicate some of the miracles that Moses and Aaron had done, they were able to recognize that this is the finger of God, something that up to this point Pharaoh has resolutely uh, denied and, and, and mockingly denied. And here is precisely where God makes a name for himself. With this uh, remarkable little powerful phrase, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. At the end of verse 12, on that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. In, in the Hebrew, it's even more succinct. It's just Ani Yahweh. I am Yahweh. And earlier in the book of Exodus, way back in chapter 6, Moses was to tell the Israelites this very thing. I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And it is this great and terrible act that finally, finally gets Pharaoh's attention. There's an interesting contrast of, of prepositions that are going on in verses 29 and 30 of this narrative. In verse 29, uh, the text tells us that the Lord struck down. The Lord struck down, and what does Pharaoh do? Pharaoh got up. Probably got up from his slumber. 
But it's interesting, when God acts, kings get up. As, as a king of Egypt, uh, you would be seated on your throne. And if you came to the king, you would be the one kneeling and standing before the king with your petition, hoping um, that he wouldn't kill you if you didn't follow protocol. The Lord struck down, Pharaoh got up. And what the Lord told Pharaoh through Moses back in chapter 4 has finally come to pass. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy uh, several chapters earlier. This is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn, and I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. And finally, finally, after this awful plague of death, Pharaoh commands the Israelites to leave in the next couple of verses without condition. People, families, flocks, herds, the best riches of Egypt. And the same Pharaoh who once said, who, who is this God? Is now asking for a blessing from the God of Jacob, Moses, and the Israelites. The God who will have no rivals. God makes a name for himself through delivering his people. He, he still does this today. We'll hear, get to hear a faith story um, after this message, which is, is nothing but an, an act of God's deliverance and, and mercy. Ask Alberto Castro, an uneducated pastor from San Jose, Costa Rica, about deliverance. He'll tell you. Uh, Alberto and his best friend were struggling musicians um, into drugs and uh, tampering with with demon worship. Central America. Uh, And God broke through. God broke through Alberto's darkness one night as he recalled both he and his friend were sitting on a hillside doing drugs. Strange place maybe for God to be. Um, not, Not Yahweh. Uh, That night, he sensed a need for God, and as he recalled the story to us, he said, I called out to whatever might be there. And Yahweh answered. Now, as a professional musician, he pastors Central Cristiano de Alabanza, uh, a church in probably one of the roughest parts of San Jose, Costa Rica, a little district of Alawalita. And there's a website up there. Unfortunately, it's all in Spanish, but... um, remarkable. He, he told the story to a group of us who were down there to help him build a, a homeless shelter. And he said uh, he sensed God coming into his heart and he started to read scripture. He put his faith and trust in Christ and got really convicted when he came across Matthew 25 about serving the least of these. About when you serve the least of these, you are serving Jesus. And he, he actually took that seriously. And now CCA Church regularly serves homeless and neglected children uh, lunch, one meal a day, six days a week. And what began as a church of 30 people, now every month serves over 10,000 meals. 10,000 meals a month in a center run completely by volunteers in the church in the absence of any government funding. I don't know how large the church is now, and frankly, I don't care. Um, 
would that, would that our church would be measured, and all churches would be measured, not by how many members there are, but how many meals they serve, or what their outreach is in the community, how they're modeling Christ. This church now also has a shelter for battered women, and a center, and a nine-month recovery program to help those dealing with drug addiction, where they share the love of Christ. They, they are Christ incarnate among the lost and the hurting and the least of those in San Jose, those whom the rest of the world has just kind of passed by. I remember just attending one of the worship servers, uh, worship services there, and just um, through an interpreter seeing how the Spirit worked mightily in Alberto's life through his preaching, um, through his leading of the worship. And here was a picture of someone who knows exactly what deliverance means. God makes a name for himself by protecting us in our difficult situations and also by delivering us out of difficult situations. Now, chances are your situation may not be as dire or as desperate or as Alberto's. But God glorifies himself and makes a name for himself and makes his name known through delivering us from our difficult circumstances. By healing diseases, he still does that, and even, and probably most profoundly, by delivering us from ourselves. God makes a name for himself when bad marriages are redeemed, by helping us overcome anger or lust or greed, or awakening us from a spiritual slumber where we find ourselves more comfortable in confessing God's sovereignty than we do in demonstrating God's sovereignty by living a a kind of risky life. Finally, because God makes a name for himself in our impossible situation, and this is probably one of the biggest ones, we must remember God's actions in our history. What is... What is significant here is that uh, in this chapter that's 30-some-odd verses long, um, very little is actually devoted to the actual Passover event. Most of what is written here is, is about the details, about how to celebrate it, how to remember it, how to commemorate it. From now on, Israel will be identified as a people whom God delivered from captivity. In the future, you could not be an Israelite and some way, shape, or form recognize that you were the people of the Exodus. How significant is this this act in Israel's history? Well, it's actually significant enough to change the way they keep time. We see this in verse 2, where God tells Moses and Aaron that this month is to be for you your first month, or the first month, the first month of your year. In some respects, their history begins, and the numbering of their months, their measurement of time, is reordered. The the year no longer begins and ends with the seasonal harvest or nature's renewal, but it begins with God's activity in liberating his people from bondage. Ever, Ever want to reorder your year? What, what might that look like? 
I, I'm not suggesting you go um, tell your boss you're taking Christmas off next week. Um, but isn't that, isn't that amazing? That the very way you keep sense of time or chronology is now changed. From now on, the year does not begin with the harvest, but with God's activity. And in verse 14, um, we see that the Lord tells Moses and Aaron that they are to commemorate this day, the 14th of Aviv, as a week-long festival to the Lord. So it's not just the Passover meal, which is the culmination, but it has turned into a week-long festival. In verse 24, Moses tells the elders they are to obey this festival as a lasting ordinance. And again, in verse 26, that this is, its significance is to be explained to your children and your children's children. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. This, this bread without yeast was tied to the remembrance of the great haste in which they were to eat while the angel of death visited. And it is called elsewhere the bread of affliction. The bread of affliction. Later on uh, in, in Deuteronomy, the, the second giving of the law, uh, they are told, the Israelites are told, remember the month of Aviv and celebrate the Passover of the Lord your God because in the month of Aviv he brought you out of Egypt by night. Sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God, uh, an animal from your flock or herd at the place the Lord will choose as a dwelling for his name. Do not eat it with bread made with yeast, but for seven days eat unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, because you left Egypt in haste. So that all the days of your life you may remember the time of your departure from Egypt. Again in verse 17, the text tells us that the Feast of Unleavened Bread is on account of God's deliverance of his people to be celebrated for generations and generations to come. God himself would later refer through the prophet Jeremiah to himself as the God, the Lord, Yahweh, who brought you out of Egypt, your rescuer. And all throughout the, the first five books of the Old Testament, the, this, this command to celebrate is repeated over and over. And it's not too hard to understand why the specifics are spelled out in such excruciating detail. Because very soon in the narrative, it becomes all too clear that the Israelites very quickly forgot God's mighty acts in liberating them on that awful night. Even as God continued to graciously sustain them in the wilderness uh, by feeding them manna and providing water. It's, it's human nature to forget. And the truth be told, while it's easy to be really critical of the Israelites and ask how in the world, after such remarkable deliverance, could they ever put, how could they doubt God? How could they ever question his goodness or his ability to act? We would complain every bit as bitterly as they did. And I think we fool ourselves if we look upon them and kind of shake our heads. Ah, oh, those Israelites. We, we, are, we are the nation of Israel. 
It is part of our human condition to forget. And we forget things all the time. What's your pet's name? Chances are you will be asked that because in the event that you forget your password, there's a little clue to help you remember. Or your girlfriend or or your wife's name or wife's maiden name, etc. We forget passwords. We forget anniversaries. Hopefully not. We forget people's names right after meeting them. Heaven forbid we even forget what last week's sermon probably was about. But God is giving them all of this repetition and all of this detail because we forget to remember. We forget to remember that our impossible situations are God's opportunity to make a name for himself. Our impossible situations are God's invitation to demonstrate his sovereignty. And even more importantly, when we forget that God can act in our history, we begin to lose hope in the future. We, we, we have the tendency to live like Christian atheists. That is, yeah, we confess Christ, we believe in the sovereignty of God, but if we're asked how we live differently because of God, it's hard to sometimes answer that question. From the world's perspective, we don't look all that different. And behind that, I think, is a sense of hopelessness and a sense of real doubt about God's ability to act where we are in the moment. I've defined it as an absence of expectancy with regard to God's care and provision in my life and in his ability to act in my unique circumstance. And it's, it is a toxic thought, but it is, if we're honest with ourselves, it's probably a daily struggle. You would think that maybe, uh, you know, a seminary professor who studies about God's sovereignty and talks about all the ways that he manifests his power, you would think that, you know, maybe I'd have this down by now. It's a daily battle. Because, quite frankly, the default mode of existence is to live as if God doesn't exist and as if he really doesn't matter to what's going on in my life today. And the psalmist records the depressing failure, a a depressing looking back on history. When our fathers were in Egypt, they gave no thought to your miracles. They did not remember your many kindnesses, and they rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea, immediately after the exodus, incidentally. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, to make his mighty power known. God loves us and saves us because he loves us, but also and primarily because he's God. God must be true to himself. I am Yahweh. And that's all you need to know right now. And you may be thinking, well, that's, you know, that's wonderful. I don't have any significant signposts like that in my life if I look back on my history. And, and, and maybe for some of you that might indeed be the case. But, yeah, but at the very least, if you are a Christ follower today, if you have embraced the good news of the gospel, Christ on the cross for our sins, for your sins, then maybe we just haven't been looking hard enough. Maybe we've forgotten about the greatest act of deliverance of all time. 
the crucifixion, death, resurrection of our Passover lamb, Christ. And it was certainly no coincidence that Jesus' crucifixion came after the Passover. Jesus celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples and and reappropriated the significance of this event, announcing that he was the Passover lamb, about to be sacrificed for the sins of the world. An announcement before the bewildered disciples who still didn't quite get it. A fact that the disciples would only come to understand after his resurrection and ascension. But we need to remember and to celebrate and retell our stories, lest we forget God's history of actions in our lives, and lest we come to think that he really doesn't make a difference in our lives. Lest we are tempted to think that he can't come through in this situation. He can't deliver here. And not just stories of conversion, but of God's activities in our lives. Now certainly we we do this corporately uh, on a regular basis as a church when we celebrate communion. But that should not be the only time that we reflect on God's actions in our own personal history. I mean, I'm all for celebrating um, spiritual birthdays. And I, I know folks who do that, that... to draw on the language of the New Testament, the the day or the time I became born again. Some people throw parties. Um, Second birthdays, they call them, as kind of an outreach event. This is when I was born again. In in the hallway in my parents' house, there's uh, a piece of paper with a few verses scribbled on it, and it's under glass, and it's framed. Um, those, those were the verses that my uncle, that my mom's brother, asked for when he lay uh, nearly dying in the hospital. Massive heart attack, um, on the verge of death, family was called in to, um, to say goodbye and to try to encourage him to keep living, to keep fighting. Uh, he, was not, he was not a Christian at the time, but by God's grace, uh, he did survive. Uh, and he called out to Jesus, and God saved him. And um, those verses have remarkable significance for my mom, and for me too. <laughs> my Uncle Ron is a great guy, um, and why physically his heart was nearly destroyed and has been significantly damaged ever since. Um, In another real sense, you know, God gave him a new heart. So there's a picture on the wall. A, A commemorative plaque to what God has done in my mom's life and in our family's life. And if if you stop to think about all the things we celebrate in our culture, from promotions to the Super Bowl to graduations, birthdays, um, you know, is is there something better to celebrate? I think certainly one of the best ways to deal with this discouragement, this sense of hopelessness, this lack of expectancy that God can move in our unique situation, is is precisely here. It's it's to remember what God has done in our past. And I know personally for me, I found uh, one particular act of God in my life 
enormously helpful and fruitful when, when I struggled with, with darkness and doubt and a sense of hopelessness. And, and here, I will have to apologize. Um, I'm, I, I lifted my faith story that I gave a while back from this sermon, so it's kind of plagiarized material. If you've heard it before, bear with me. I won't spend too much time talking about it. But it, it, it's one of the few milestone movements in my life where, where I found that um, when, I needed to God, when I needed God to show up, he did. And it was, it was several years ago. At this point, I was still an engineer at Motorola. I had completed my MDiv or Master's of Divinity degree and sensed that I really needed to, to keep going, to, to get the doctorate so that I could teach professionally. Uh, and someone had put the crazy idea uh, in my head of going to the UK and studying over there. Um, and I kind of, you know, started to research Scotland and became enamored with the place. It's, it's the old adage, you know, the old, the old scenario, the grass is always greener somewhere else. Um, although I mentioned before, in Scotland, it literally is true, the grass is greener with, um, w- with the weather there. It, it, and it seemed to me that things were progressing until a particular morning when it just seemed as if um, maybe it was time to let this, this nonsense go. T- too many things were piling up on, on the negative side of the equation. My wife's health was, was faltering in, in a couple of areas, and I wasn't sure, we weren't sure that we could get adequate medical attention over there. Um, I was in the application process, and every application I filled out just highlighted uh, in great detail my inadequacies and inability uh, as a scholar and a re- researcher and a writer. And, there, you know, there were a lot of conspicuous blanks where other people maybe could have put in something to help them get accepted. Um, I-, I needed a thesis topic, and I really didn't have that either, and that's absolutely critical if you're going to study in the UK. They, they really don't care what classes you've had. They want to know what you want to study. In fact, there, there, there were no classes the, the whole time I was over there. But if, if you don't pick a good topic... Or if you don't know what it is, then you kind of kind of make one up. So <laughs> that's literally what I did. And I found myself thinking, this is just, this is insanity. This is, you know, only, only insane people do this kind of stuff. Move to Europe and study, and that, that's, that's not my upbringing. Very cautious, very safe, very measured. Don't take risks. And uh, I, I just kind of bottomed out. And I remember going to, to work at Motorola that morning. I'm sitting in my car. The radio's off. And I'm just kind of praying to God and saying, God, I don't, you know, is it time? Is, is it time for me to let this go? Is it time for me to move on? Is, is there a plan B? Because I just, I don't think I can follow through on this anymore. And I sat there in silence, um, strangely expecting God to speak. And as, as best as I was able to discern, he did. And it wasn't any kind of audible voice, but I, I sensed uh, very clearly in my spirit that he was saying, Todd, I've, just hold on, I've got something for you. And th- that's all I got. And, and for all I knew, that was, that was me and my alter ego, and it wasn't God's voice. And... Uh, then, then everything changed, and about, about an hour later, uh, I found myself at work, and one of my colleagues came up to me and said, hey, I, I'm supposed to go to a conference in Wales tomorrow, and I, I can't make it. 
and it, you know, the, the, it's all been paid for. It's non-refundable. Someone needs to go. Why don't, why don't you go? I thought, whoa, okay, um, you know, free, free trip to the UK. Um, went on the internet, scrambled like a madman, and booked a really cheap flight up to Scotland for the weekend. Um, found a place to stay very cheaply at a place called the Rutherford House. Um, and within, within just a matter of hours, I found myself, um, after the conference, driving in the UK, driving in Scotland on, on the other side of the road with great trepidation. Um, but, but here I was. I, you know, just days earlier, I would thought, this, this is never going to happen. And it's as if God said, yeah, it is. Don't, don't sweat it. And I, I had a totally anointed trip. I thought, well, this will be an indicator of maybe what I'm supposed to do. And, and everything went off flawlessly. I was, I was able to talk to professors at various universities. Uh, I was able to see a little bit of the, of the various cities, visit a couple of churches. Um, I mean, I'll never forget, I found myself standing outside uh, of the University of Aberdeen, probably one of the darkest, coldest, most God-forsaken places on the planet. Um, but I, I was enamored with it. And I, uh, you know, here's these big castle columnades, you know, University of Aberdeen established in 1496. Uh, and I'm standing there, and it's actually sunny out and beautiful. And then this, this major pipe band in full regalia, they just come marching down the cobblestone streets right in front of me. And it's as if God was kind of serenading me, saying, this is, you know, this is not a big deal for me. You know, and, and precisely at the point where I was ready to move somewhere else, God was saying, well, just don't sweat it. And, you know, I got the message from that weekend as I returned home, not that um, I was going to go to Scotland, but I mean, <laughs> the, the real message was is that I'm, I'm Yahweh, I'm God. There's, th- th- this, is not, this is not a problem for me. Th- there are no obstacles that will prevent me from doing what I need to do in your life. And, and I'll tell you, when, when we finally did move over there and I found myself um, in, in the depression that often attends doctoral work, when, when you're working by yourself on your own on a topic that only you know something about um, are supposed to know something about, um, th- th- there were times and setbacks where I, you know, realized that what I had just written for the past three months was just absolute rubbish. Um, there were many times when I thought, man, I, I wonder if I did the right thing. And um, I would think back to that day. I, would, I remembered what God had done to get me there. And, you know, it was enough for God to kind of gently remind me, Todd, you know, didn't I put you here in the first place? Do, do, do you think I'm done with you? I, I held on to that story. And, you know, when I spent a year working on my final corrections, I still held on to that story. Because I'm, I'm tempted to forget. What's, what, what's your story? I have no doubt in, in a church this big that there are several of us who are probably being swept away in a torrential current of things that are beyond your control. 
events that are coming from the outside, not of your own choosing, but things um, that have left you fearful and kind of flailing for air. You're, you're, you're kind of floating down the river, able to see the shore, but unable to reach it, and it feels as if Niagara is just around the bend. <laughs> what's your Niagara? What's, what's your impossible situation? Maybe all you can deal with hearing today is God telling you, I am Yahweh. There is no impossible situation that I can't deal with. Because I'm the God of impossible possibilities. God makes a name for himself in our impossible situations. He protects us, he delivers us, and by his grace he enables us to celebrate and remember his acts in our history. Let's pray. God, we, we thank you that you, in, in your wisdom and mercy and your freedom and your goodness, you, we thank you that you have condescended to us and given us given us your word and we thank you that you always watch over us and protect us even though we may not always feel like it and we pause here to remember that great act of your son God in the flesh God Christ incarnate coming to us to dwell among us and to live and to breathe our very same air, and to be hung on a cross, and to suffer at the hands of your own people. We celebrate your resurrection and your ascension and the fact that you indeed will one day come back. and make everything right. No more tears, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more death. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you took the way of the cross and that you offered up freely your body and your blood for us so that we might have a newness of life. We remember your suffering so that we might be changed. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for that great sacrifice. In your name we pray.